Welcome to the Morse Code Podcast, where we have conversations with entrepreneurially-minded creatives in music, film, and writing. My name is Corby, and our goal here is to inspire you to push deeper into your own work, whether you're a full-time professional or just curious about what it's actually like to live as an indie creative. This week's episode is brought to you by the Nashville chapter of the 48-Hour Film Festival, an annual film competition in which teams of filmmakers have 48 hours to create a short film from scratch. Be on the lookout for the 2024 edition coming next summer. I'm really excited to bring to you this conversation with my new friend and longtime personal hero, Adam Levy, a guitarist, songwriter, and band leader most famous for his collaborations with Nora Jones and Tracy Chapman. Adam's tasty playing is all over Nora's best-selling albums, including Come Away With Me and Feels Like Home. I bumped into him recently at Guthrie Trapp's standing gig on Monday nights here in East Nashville at a great little club called The Underdog. Adam sat in on a few songs with Guthrie and proceeded to light up the room with his unusual combination of finesse and what I might call joy on fire. We talk about all kinds of stuff, from his early influence as the grandson of George Weil, an arranger and composer in the 50s and 60s, most famous for composing the theme song to Gilligan's Island, to combining a somewhat formal music education with his own personal exploration, a journey which eventually led to his collaborations with Tracy Chapman. We also talk about our shared admiration for guitarist and composer Bill Frizzell, as well as Adam's take on learning how to combat stage fright through remembering an episode of Mr. Rock. Finally, Adam plays two songs live in the studio. Check out his brand new record, Spry, and if that's not enough, he released a book last month called String Theories. So let's get into it already. My conversation with Adam Levy. Man, thank you so much for making a little time for me here. And um, you're a busy guy and you're only in town for a few days. So thank you in advance, I guess, for whatever's about to happen. Um, who knows? And this, I guess I could say that this happened because, uh, thanks to Guthrie Trapp, our now mutual friend who has a standing gig at the underground in East Nashville. And, um, I didn't have any idea that you were going to be there, but there you were and, um, taking chances and making it happen as per usual. And I was, Kyle and I were sitting in the audience, just like so delighted. And uh, I was nervous to uh, talk to you because we'd never really met, um, but you were so gracious and nice. And now here, here, here you are. And, um, what, uh, what good fortune. Oh, right. So on. thank you, man. Yeah. And, uh, maybe, uh, how did, well, we could start, how did uh, you get in touch with Guthrie or how did that even happen? Was it just like you knew of him, you reached out or he reached out or, yeah. Uh, how did that happen? I mean, he's kind of a known, that, that gig is probably a known quantity in the, you know, yeah, if you're in town, swing by. For sure. You know, he was, he came through New York about two months ago. Uh, he was playing a show with Oz Noy mm-hmm. at the bitter end. And honestly, I can't remember the initial thing of how, like, we got each other's digits or whatever. But I do, when we were talking about trying to connect in New York, uh, I had I knew I had this trip coming up. And while he was in New York, we just kept missing each other. I couldn't make it to his gig at the bitter end. And then we were trying to get together for a coffee. And it just, it, it was a bunch of messages back and forth. And it just, we were both too busy that week. So I said, hey, man, I'm coming down to, to Nashville uh maybe we could play and he said yeah i've got this monday night gig just come on by and since i didn't know him that well i didn't know if that meant like come Come see me yeah (laughs) or if that meant you know come early set up sound check i I really didn't know what that meant yeah well it turned out it meant sit in and see what (laughs) happens well yeah we got a little more focused as, as it came closer yeah, because you were playing, I mean, some of those arrangements are a little bandy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you were right in there. So was there a little bit of a rehearsal or just like a, a chart or, no. or uh, just big ears? Well, I'd love to say I just have big ears, but really it's a combination of, yeah, I do have big ears. I also have like ocd and anxiety and when i wrote to guthrie like a week out like hey man are there some songs i should learn you know is there are there 
iTunes? Uh, is there like a SoundCloud link or a record or anything? And he's like, oh man, it's just, it's everything is just two chords, just come down. So I go on YouTube and I find that there's these uh, couple of live streams that he did in June mm. from the underdog with that band. Now, you know, that was June. This is already the end of August. I don't know if the tunes in that live stream are tunes that he plays all the time or if if those were like just the tunes in June. Or, But I thought, okay, let me try to learn those tunes and then... If those are the one, if any, if if he calls even one of them, I'm a little bit ahead of, of sure. just like starting from scratch. So, I mean, that's like really an anxiety dream for me is like <laughs> being on stage and having no idea what's going on. Mm. So Guthrie is, I think, more of like, well, oh, just go for it. It'll be cool. And there's a part of me that's like that, too. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, I because from where we were, you know, you were in there going for it. And uh, I was thinking and um, one always maybe or if one is me, I, I'm always like looking at other players and be like, oh, I can totally relate to that. Or I'm like, that is what I wish I could do. Mm. Or, you know, like I'm, I've done this for a long enough time that I'm sort of aware of what I might be good at and what I definitely know I'm not uh-huh. and uh, not the best imp- improviser in the world. And p- for what, you know, I can do it, but it's like, um, I t- take your anxiety and find it more paralyzing than empowering. And you, you know, in that moment, at least have the fortitude to just charge ahead into the unknown and see what happens and, you know, you stick the landings. So whatever you're, um, apprehension was, you know, you still kind of, if nothing else, fake it until, you know, fake it well enough that it's like, I'm, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and I really, I say when I talk about like, you know, this stuff, I don't share it to be self-indulgent, but just in the hopes that somebody else might go like, oh, I feel that way sometimes, or I recognize that. And you know, maybe not think of it as some insurmountable thing, but just part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I took a look at your your bio, and I mean, I've I've known of you and seen your playing even live, like in L.A. here and there across. And you're you know you're absolutely a known and widely loved um, artist in our our little neck of the music woods. Um, there, you've ventured in many necks. Um, and maybe we could start with just a little bit of background. I know that you grew up in LA, your, your granddad, George was, um, really involved in music for television and film. And so consequently you were around sort of like the American songbook as a little, little kid. Am I right? Mostly right. Um, he didn't work in film, but he worked in television. Just, Uh uh, he worked in variety shows uh, there was a, a singer named Andy Williams, and my grandfather was the musical director on his show. Mm. And he was a, Andy was a singer, and also would regularly have guests on who were singers. So my grandfather quite often was having to like write arrangements for like a sort of a miniature big band mm-hmm. for people, to, you know, for Andy to sing or for a guest. Or sometimes there was a, like he did he wrote a lot of duets. And so things would change keys to accommodate two different singers trying to sing the same song. Or he was really good at figuring out like, oh, this song, this Irving Berlin song, actually you can sandwich it together with this George Gershwin song and they make a kind of a medley together. Hmm. So to him, that was uh, what we now call the Great American Songbook was just kind of pop for him from his generation. He was Mm -hmm. born in 1916. So... When he was working in television in the in the '60s and in radio before that, these songs from the '30s and '40s, uh, as I said, Irving Berlin and and Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart, he didn't think of them as just vehicles for jazz improvisation, which is what some people who discover that music. That's how they think, because they learn it through a Miles Davis record or something. Sure. But to him, like, that was what was on the radio when he was a young person. And so, 
that's just now that I think of it, that's just wild that like for a generation that was just simply pop. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't thought of as high art or anything like that. Yeah. Um and so you were, if he was, I'm like doing the math so in the, in, when it was in TV, when he was in TV, that's, he was like 40s or 50s mm -hmm. even then. So you may or may not have been around or did you kind of get this hearsay from your folks? Like granddad really knew his stuff. Or? Well, no, both. I mean, I, so we were 50 years apart. He was born in 1916 and I was born in 1966. Mm. He did very well and could have retired at 60 comfortably. But he wanted to keep working for two reasons. One is it's just he loved it. Mm -hmm. He loved music. He loved the people that he worked with. He mm -hmm. loved show business. He loved everything about it. You know, he worked a lot at NBC Studios in Burbank. Uh, worked on a handful of different TV shows that happened there. And, and then later in life, like when I started playing guitar with artists who would be on, you know, guests on late night shows or whatever, for me to go back into that place always just really brought back really good feelings of remembering with my grandfather. But no, he used to... Some of these are the same studios as you had been to as a little yeah. kid. How's, so so he cool. stayed in it for two reasons. One is he loved it just genuinely. Like even when he finally did retire, he still first thing in the morning had a cup of coffee and went straight to the piano. Like he never stopped making music. Mm. But he also stayed in it longer than he needed to because he wanted to hand me the torch. So when he was 70 and I was 20, I was finally mature enough to, you know, not make... <laughs> you know, an ass of myself around, you know, grown up studio people. And uh, he hired, I joined the union and he hired me for a session. And mm. that was the last working day. Like a couple days later, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm done now. Wow. Yeah. Like he, he got to the goal. Yeah. It's just like the next generation. Yeah. Or, so you guys were tight then when you were a kid coming up. Oh yeah. My, my parents split up when I was a kid. And so I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house because they were kind of helping take care of me while, my, you know, my mom was working. And uh, so, well, yeah, I was very close. This, this is, so this is my mother's parents, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that, you can see now the influence must have been almost organic, being just physically in the spaces where your grandpa grandpa was. Right. He never sat me down and said, let me show you how music works. It yeah. was never like that. But I spent a lot of time in his house. And a lot of time with him at work. And do you think that has informed your approach to um, developing as a player in the sense that, you know, some some players are studiers, you know, they get in there and they like learn the Stevie Ray Vaughan songbook or, you know, the licks and then use those as building blocks and others sort of go through through it via osmosis and was is does one of those two approaches speak to you more or? No, they're they're really equal to me, and I have this silly image of it, which is maybe the, the wrong image. But did you ever see this movie, Night of the Hunter? No, it's a I like great the title. Though. Yeah, it's this incredible movie with Robert Mitchum, mm -hmm. where he's sort of a bad preacher man, and he has tattooed on one set of knuckles, love and hate is on the other one. And he's explaining to this, these kids how, you know, love and it's a battle mm. for love and hate. And um, that's not at all what you're asking, but, you know, am I... Uh, well, it so, gets at that sort of like dualistic approach to life that you can find everywhere. Right. You know, these inherent contradictions that somehow you have to hold on to at the same time. Yeah. As you make your way forward. Yeah. So. And that's where I feel like I am a studier. Like when I was in high school, I, I took a class on writing uh, four-part chorales, like Bach style. Mm -hmm. So I learned all the rules of that and I loved it. And then I got to study with this guy, Ted Green, who was a kind of a legendary guitar teacher in LA and player, but more as a teacher. And then I went to music school right out of high school. I went to this music school in L.A. So I was very... Uh, 
educated in a formal way, mm-hmm. but also, you know, when I was a kid, there was no YouTube, but I would study songbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather, because of what he had done professionally, had file cabinets in his garage just full of... I can only imagine. You know... Arrangements upon arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. And songbooks, because when he worked in television, you know, I was saying a minute ago how, you know, his heroes were Irving Berlin and stuff, but if you're the musical director of a a TV show that's happening in 1972, you need to know about the Beatles, you need to know about uh, Joni Mitchell, you need to know about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Mm -hmm. because those people might be a guest on the show, and maybe you've got to write an arrangement for something like that. Mm -hmm. So he just had loads and loads of songbooks, and he would... He, it was like a lending library. I could take them out. I couldn't keep them. He had this like um, index log, card log book or check out. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> due dates. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I would borrow them and like kind of take them apart. And I mean, not take the books apart, but take the songs apart. You know, why does C sound good when it goes to A minor? Why does C sound a little different when it goes to F minor mm-hmm. or to D minor mm-hmm. or? When it doesn't go anywhere and just hangs out on C for mm-hmm. eight bar, like I try to figure that stuff out, and then I would listen to records, and so I was very uh, curious and self-directed, but also I did go to formal music school. I um I I really can relate to that in that um I didn't have any formal music training, but I was like as a child very interested in, it, and I was always out there and like. One the solo in the court, you know, the court. I had a high school band that was, we were serious. We made money touring around rural Idaho. Uh, it was pretty glamorous. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. when I went to college, that my first year in uh, music theory freshman, it was like a light exploded <laughs> where, you know, it was like, oh, that's why you know, like the whole concept of like tonicizing, like a five of five, like how chords are related. And and then once you know how they're related, how there's so much power in being able to manipulate them. And I was like, that was a driving force in my, my musical exploration for several years until I was like, you know what? I kind of like it a little, like as soon as it gets real heady, then I get heady. And I'm like, I kind of like to live in an emotional space. And now I'm back to like one, four, five songs. Mm. But, um, but, but anyway, like I still, it's so exciting to go hear something interesting in a song and go, is that a major three? Is that, is that, oh, it's a three going to the four instead of the resolving to the six minor, which is what you think normally. And, you know, right. you also see like once these, these things that were kind of curious that grabbed your attention, in time, you start to recognize them in many places, and you realize, oh, these are all tropes. They're kind of reused right. and recycled. Three, six, right. two, five, one is right. everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> but um, so I, I can share your enthusiasm, and and but there's so much power that comes with that. Yeah. Um, whether or not you choose to use it or or anything. So how did you? Um, let's see. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, you were you went from L.A. to San Francisco. You wrote for among other things, the guitar player magazine that was yeah. in that little space. Yeah. And you were, um, uh, Bill Frizzell acolyte mm-hmm. is it fair to say. Yeah. And you can still hear that in your playing. Yeah, um, sure. and I'm such a huge fan. Um, he, he was a guy that pulled me out of my like austere acoustic. I only cared about bluegrass and old time and anything like for out, out of college. And I came across like I for I don't even know why it's embarrassing to say that now because I didn't grow up that way I was like a fish junkie, and then um, but I got real I listened to David Grisman's Hot Dog Record, mm-hmm. and for a minute there and by a minute I mean like about six years all I wanted to do was like learn how to play like Tony Rice, <clears throat> didn't happen, but not for lack of trying. Uh-huh. And, uh, but somewhere like out of that, there was two things that happened. And one of them was the pizza tapes record with Grisman. And the, what was the turning point for me was that it was Grisman Rice and Jerry Garcia and hearing Tony and Jerry back to back. I was like, Oh, I like it so much more with the space, Mm. you know, in the, um, and that was like a gateway to all things Jerry and like his, what the humility that he brings to the music, the, the heart, you know, and the intelligence, the quick, the mind, the fearlessness. 
Um, but also the, like the, not the most choppy of choppiness of chops and that idea of like working within limits was so attractive to me. But what I wanted to say was the other record that was really important to me was, um, the, I think it was ghost town of Bill Frizzell's where it was like a lot of, elect, a lot of acoustic. I think that might've been the one he did with, um, uh, the banjo picker, Danny, oh, Danny Barnes, Danny Barnes. And I'm, I think it was actually the one before, but they were very similar sounding records. But um, one of them was like a lot of acoustic music, and then it was his electric guitar playing, and I was just like, "It's so interesting what he's doing. That's such high art." And it, like, it was the end of like acoustic music only for me. Anyway, um, you're so you're a Bill Frisell acolyte, and uh, that I, did you like? Were you guys in the same town or? I, uh, no, we weren't in the same town. Uh, a lot of the time, the record, like in the 90s when he was making a lot of these records and into early 2000s, uh, he was in Seattle. Before that, he had been, I think, in New York or maybe New Jersey. But yeah, he lived, he was on the New York scene for a while and then moved, and then he was in Seattle. Uh but the reason I got to know him was, was kind of twofold. One is in 89, I was living in LA, I was 23 years old, and a friend of mine called me at the last minute and asked like, hey, what are you doing like now? And I said, well, I don't know, what am I doing now? And he's like, well, I have tickets to see Bill Frizzell at this, there was a place in, in Santa Monica called At My Place. I don't think it's there. Anymore. But in 89, that was a spot where you'd go to hear music. And I'd only read about him in Guitar Player Magazine. This is 1989. You know, mm -hmm. he's not like in the culture in the way that maybe he is now. But I mean, he was in Guitar It's like Club. before the MacArthur grants and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. yeah. But I went to see him and it completely, completely blew my mind. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm. You know, uh, I remember when, when I. Um, in the years that I worked at Guitar Player Magazine, which is a little bit before this, so this is like 97, 98. Uh, oh, sorry. After what I just said, but before what I'm about to say, uh, I interviewed Hubert Sumlin, who was this incredible blues guitar player that played on almost all the Howlin' Wolf records. Mm. And I asked him, like, how did you get started? And he said, man... One day, when I was a kid, I found an old, warped Charlie Patton record in a garbage can. And I pulled it out, and I took it home, and I put it on the record player. And I heard it, and I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Mm. And when I heard Bill play in L.A. or in Santa Monica in 89, it was really clear. Because, like, think of the context. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s at sort of peak shred yeah uh mtv videos all the hair metal bands slash had, right ruled the town slash ruled the town yeah and even in like the jazz fusion thing which was pretty big in la you had uh, a guy named frank gambale mm -hmm. um, a guy named scott henderson so like in jazz there were guys playing solid body guitars and shredding you turn on the radio and, you know, you could hear anything from, yeah, Eddie Van Halen to Slash. That's, the, I grew up in that time. And then to hear Bill play in 1989 with his quartet and be going in such a different direction, I just, it really, it got to me. Mm -hmm. Got to my heart. So bold in that context, right. right? I mean, he just is like going this complete different direction. Yeah. Not a jazz cat straight up, right. you know, but not uh, glam rock. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's a Frizzell thing. Yeah. So. And then, so after that, I moved to the Bay Area, as you said. I was living in, in Berkeley for a little while. And through a mutual friend, I got to meet uh, Bill's manager. Uh, well, man he's managed by a, a couple, really, uh, there's a guy named Lee Townsend whose name shows up on a bunch of Bill's records as a producer. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Lee's wife, uh, her name is Phyllis Oyama. And I got to meet them through a mutual friend. And so that's how I got to know Bill was that 
because the, the two people I just mentioned, Lee and Phyllis, they live in Berkeley. I'd see them socially, you know, and when Bill would come through town, you know, we'd, we'd meet up. Uh, he put out a songbook in the late 90s. He published uh, all the songs he'd written up till that point, when, of course, he's written hundreds more since then. Mm-hmm. But um, I wrote a little foreword for that book. Um, I interviewed him for Guitar Player Magazine when the Ghost Town record came out. So we've known each other for... Uh, something like 30 years i guess mm-hmm. never actually played together but you know now we're, where i live in brooklyn we're kind of neighbors yeah and, uh, you know you're young yet i think there's time <laughs> um and so there's kind of a full circle moment too, too because the new record that's coming out has joey baron on it and right. he's a long time bill collaborator i think right. that was in fact there was a live recording that he did in i want to say his late 80s early 90s uh, maybe it was made in it was in Europe somewhere, but he does a cover of Have a Little Faith in Me. And I think Barron's playing drums on that. And um, I, like that was one of my, I was just like, oh my God. Because it was improv on improv. I mean, just course after course after course, after, like eight times through. And it yeah. kept going. And then it was like huge without being loud. Mm-hmm. And that was for me as a kid, the first time I ever was in the presence of that even when I was on a record I was like it's so big and it's the same exact volume as it was the beginning and I, that was like a glimpse of mastery that I had not encountered prior you know yeah you know I saw Bill at the Village Vanguard uh, and also thank you for bringing up the, my new record which I'm glad to circle back to but I'm just going to share yeah, okay, this well, little anecdote because I think it's funny uh, funny to me, I, I saw Bill play at the Village Vanguard about three weeks ago, and he was doing this thing called Five, which is himself and two bass players and two drummers, basically taking the two trios that he has played with post his band with Joey Barron. So he's had a long-standing trio with Tony Cher on bass and Kenny Wallace mm-hmm. on drums. And then he's had another trio with Thomas Morgan and, and Rudy Royston. So he had the idea, to, let's just all play. And on the face of it, you might think, is that gonna be, isn't that going to be, first of all, really loud? A little much. Perhaps. Like, yeah. It's, but it wasn't, of course, because everybody's you know, a musician and an artist, and they love each other. Yeah. And so I saw this show, and I saw the last show of his week-long run. So he was there Tuesday to Sunday, two nights a week. And I saw the late set Sunday night. So he's been playing this music with this group. This is the 12th show in six days. It was the thing you were saying about how it got really big, but it wasn't necessarily loud. Like, you don't need earplugs at a Bill Frisell show, even when there's two drummers. But this young, sweet, I was talking with Bill after the show, and this young kid, uh, I say kid, I mean, I don't know. He might have been 25. The kid, to me, came up to Bill, and uh, he's like, man, I just I really wanted to meet you, and I wanted to just thank you for uh, being so vulnerable. Mm. And I knew what he meant, because it does take a kind of vulnerability to do that, but at the same time, I felt like it wasn't quite the right word because, I mean, in his way, Bill is such a baller. It's just like, yeah. it, it's so powerful. And yes, there is a vulnerability in what he does, but I, I was kind of like, is that really the word? I'm not sure that's <laughs> the word. You pulled him aside, young man. Listen. <laughs> no, who you're talking I got, Yeah. There's exactly. a lot of ad- adjectives in the English language. Yeah, exactly. So I walked him across the street and I bought him a thesaurus and I said, hey, you know, good luck. And um, um, You're here. I wondered, would you would you mind playing a song? Not at all. Let's let's uh, let's get this going for that. This is our house 
three little rooms It ain't too bad when the flowers are in bloom Don't get much sun Don't get much shade This is our house We got it This is our child, the apple from our tree. She looks like you, she talks like me. Someday she'll lead the band in a honky tonk parade. This is our family. As we fumble through the dark Our love will be the spark Trouble may rise But it's bound to fall away This is our song And now it's played I've told the story true I have I this is our house we've got it made this is our So you've also played on some really big records that everybody knows. And um, that's, you know, let's spend a moment there if you could indulge me. But uh, most of your, well, the works that I, that like my wife will freak out about are like the stuff that you did with Tracy Chapman and Nora Jones. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can talk for a second about how, how did you get involved with Tracy first? Am I right? Yeah. Um, uh, a, a mutual friend, uh, a guitar player named Charlie Hunter, uh, knew Tracy and knew that she was looking for a guitar player and recommended me. Mm -hmm. And so I auditioned. It was the first like formal audition that, that I ever did. And how old were you when you got that gig? 30. Okay. Not so you've been kid. kicking around for a minute. Yeah. Um, and was that... You toured with her and, and then played on studio records or vice versa? I played on a record that's called New Beginning that had a single called, uh, the single was Give Me One Reason. Oh, yeah, the, the yeah. song. Yeah, and so the record that that song comes from is called New Beginning. There's a sunflower on the cover, and that's the one record that I played on with Tracy. And Did you, but did you do the studio first and then tour, or did you, or did it kind of... I'll come out of the touring just no, curious no. chicken before egg or Th that gig was very yeah the chicken and the egg on that gig was very uh, unusual at least in my experience I started playing with Tracy I, I got the audition and I, I I was hired and they said we're gonna rehearse for a few weeks and then we're gonna make a new record and uh, then we're gonna go out on the road that sounds great yeah. And I was on retainer. Like I got 
like, whoa, okay, cool. This is what it's like. This is what it's like. And we were we were rehearsing like five days a week. So I thought, okay, well, five days a week. You know, in a few weeks, we should have this all sorted out. Then, then they decided, uh, they, uh, I say they, I don't know if it was coming from Tracy or from management, but let's say Tracy uh, decided, I want the band to know all of my catalog. And she had already made three records at that point. She had mm. three records out. So I was like, okay, well, we'll learn 40 songs or whatever that is. Cool. Um, and so we had to kind of get those together before she would start showing us the new songs. So three weeks turned into like six weeks. And then she was kind of particular about parts and tones and, you know, not, uh, not in a bad way, but just like, Hey, you know, go back and listen to that in the second verse, this thing happened that you're not doing the thing that, that makes that work. Mm. Uh, and you know we were learning vocal harmony sometimes and so then it was like 12 weeks went by and then it was like wow maybe this won't end <laughs> I started yeah. to wonder and then at, after about six months we actually did go out and do a little tour before we recorded because Tracy knew that like all the rehearsing you can do when you actually take a band out on the road, that's when it gets together. Yeah. Really. That's how you get a band together. We played some very low-key shows. I, I couldn't even tell you where we played. None of it was recorded. I've Googled to try to find out where we played. Or There's, like, no footprint. It was <laughs> Like, just around a, L.A. or? No. No. Well, this, this was all happening. York. No, uh, this was happening in the Bay Area. Okay. She lived somewhere up there. Uh and we were rehearsing, uh, the rehearsal space was in Oakland. Mm. And, you know, the gigs were like, uh, we did a show in Kansas. They were like mostly like college gigs at colleges. Mm. Not even theaters, but just really low key. They, they weren't promoted. They were just places where people would be anyway. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, yeah, because it wasn't meant to draw her fans it was really meant to just get the band get the band tighter yeah, yeah gelling and then we went in and recorded uh the, the album which was maybe like a week or 10 days of, of recording and then i left the band before the big tour so i am not in the mtv video mm -hmm. uh, the guitarist that followed me her name is linda taylor she she plays guitar in the video playing my parts mm -hmm. and uh yeah. So somewhere in there, you made the record. So you went out and did the shows and then came back and made the record. Made the record. And then you went off to do other things yeah. after that. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been funny. I always wonder for, about um, how it is for musicians who learn the parts of other musicians from records. I mean, you probably have done it a zillion times. I've done it a zillion times. Uh, I learned all the parts on the first record, which was mostly a guy from Memphis uh, I can't remember his name now because I'm bad with names, but Jack, something. And then I learned all the parts from her second record, which is a different guitar player, and all the parts from her third record. And I, I you know, that's what you do. But a funny thing is, I recently had to relearn some of my own parts. Uh, an artist that I play with now, her name is Liz Wright, mm -hmm. and um, we recorded her uh, in February. Yeah, you should check her out. Yeah, check her out. L I Z Z W R I G H T. I think I've seen her around. L A. You said she's in Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And we just shot a music video for the single for her next record, which will come out probably in spring. And in order to shoot the music video, since they were going to have multiple cameras, I knew they were going to zoom in. I have a guitar solo, so I had to relearn my guitar solo note for note, which was a funny feeling to me because the camera because so the like, camera yeah, totally yeah because we were playing to the track like mm -hmm. you know it's so i had to play basically the exact thing i played on yeah the nothing record. that ever stops music or video people from the, you know like there's, <laughs> right. they, they don't really notice that the fingers aren't hitting the frets right. exactly but the musicians I, are like ah. i knew it was possible that i would do all the work of relearning my solo perfectly and then that in the final edit it could look ridiculous. a different take yeah. they're like ah it looks i like this facial expression right there like, I, well i get that know? i mean yeah. you know the, the people that make videos are filmmakers um 
but anyway, so I have some idea. It was kind of a funny thing to have to like, you were, you were saying like learn parts off records. I had to learn my own parts off of a record and that was kind of funny. <laughs> so um, let's talk about the new record. Okay. It comes out, well, this is going to air in um, in a couple of months. So mm-hmm. it, it probably just came out. Yeah. Uh, um, and from what I read about it, it was the approach to recording it was like everybody in the same room, mm-hmm. largely at the same time, minimal isol- isolation. And yeah. That was a, a, dis- a choice uh, of um, desire or necessity or both or neither. Uh, desire. Really, that came from Joey Barron, the drummer. We showed up at the studio. They had capability. We could have been fully isolated, no problem. Lots of people probably make records in that studio and isolate everything. But Joey walked in and he looked around and he's like, man, it would really be great if we could just be in the same room together, not use headphones. Um, You know, because this is a band that's not a well-oiled machine. We didn't. Me and Larry Grenadier and Joey Barron didn't have a six-month lockout at a studio in <laughs> Oakland and then 10 days on the road. Does anyone anymore? No, <laughs> no, really. no they, they do not. Um, I wrote this music. I made little like home demos of the music, just playing my acoustic guitar with a metronome, mm-hmm. sent them to those guys, um, made charts, and I said, this is the music. Uh, we won't have a rehearsal. We're just going to go to the studio and start recording. And I think in Joey's mind, because we weren't a well-oiled band, that's like, oh, I don't need to see these guys. I know what I know what they're going to play. We we didn't know that at all. This music had never been played. Those two guys had played together. I had played with each of every comp, every possible duo in that trio had played together at some time, but we'd never all played together. <laughs> So Joey said, the best result we're going to get musically is if we can see each other and hear each other. So we got, we set up pretty close together, Mm. played very quietly, listened to each other, no headphones. And uh, a little sacrifice was made in when you have to mix it, that it just, there's bleed. Sure. Is what it is. That's part of the joy of it all. There's always been limits in music. It's only until very recently that there are almost none. And there's maybe a, a direct relationship between the humanity of a p- particular recording and the amount of control one has or one doesn't have. Right. You could make an argument. I'm not yeah, saying I, for sure. I'm making that argument. But. So, yeah, I'm a, um, I've heard the, uh, the band camp tracks, the kind of pre-release text, and it's, it's very musical. And you can tell it. You know, it's a conversation um, style. And that's... A compliment to me of any piece of music i i that's what i look for um i hope that it, it's being received really well and i do want to get into this part uh of the conversation because you have had a decade that spanned you know many decades at this point and so you've weathered changes in industry changes in your own life personally um the ups and the downs the opportunity being on the top of the mountain and where there's probably been a few valley moments. I'm just going to guess. How have you, you know, stayed, uh, you're not, you're also like the opposite of a jaded guy, at least from where I sit. And, um, that's just such a wonderful quality to have maintained, you know, throughout. And how do you think that's just, you know, part of your basic disposition? Is it some choices you had to make some, um, how have you stayed motivated and inspired? Across time, mm. uh, well, and I'm thinking actually about something you asked me earlier. That is is connected in the the dotto sphere. Um. You know, we're talking about like when I sat in with Guthrie Trap the other night, um, I was pretty nervous before we went on. My hands were clammy. Mm. Uh, I wanted to have a beer to relax, but I was also afraid if I had a beer, then I would play worse and I didn't want to do that. (laughs) So I was just like kind of really in my own head. 
Mm. And then I thought about Mr. Rogers, who I watched a lot of when I was a kid, like mm. a lot. Mm. And I remembered an episode where they went to the hospital for something. I can't remember what it was. And, and at that time, I was just about to get my tonsils out. So I was going to have to go to the hospital for the first time. So this was ringing true. Yeah. yeah. And he made it like the thing that I, that I said to you, which is like, it's just part of the human experience. If, if I'm a little nervous or my hands are sweaty or if I think maybe I can't really do this, I'm about to walk out on stage with a very serious guitar player. I don't really know the songs. I've I'd never met his bass player before. I knew his drummer. Playing into an amplifier I've never plugged into, no sound check, just walk out on stage, plug and play, uh, look out in the audience, a bunch of guitar players are out there. I'm like, oh man. But I thought about Mr. Rogers and you know, he made that like going to the hospital thing. He didn't try to convince kids that it was gonna be fun mm-hmm. or easy but just that it's part of being a person mm-hmm. and that um, uh, a lot of being a person means just like taking us a, a step forward and, and, and believing in yourself and believing in the humanity of other people that something good will happen, you know? Yeah, there's, um, there's kind of a Buddhist element to that of like noticing the feeling and, you know, the Buddhist would say, like, not being attached to it. But that's a similar way of saying, like, this feeling is part of life. It's okay. It's welcome here, too. Yes. It's not going to dictate what I do next. But I'm noticing it. And, like, that's okay. You're here. Yeah. There's something so empowering about that. Yeah. So, um, so you've managed to, and I'm going to just extrapolate from that, this idea that you've managed to, you know, whatever particular feeling um, it's like, it's okay. And you've been you've had enough faith to take another step forward and trusting that it will continue to be okay or a different version of okay. Yes. Yeah. And so that's how, you know, um, I'm 56 now. Uh, I'll be 57 before this year is over. When I started playing music, that seemed old to me, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, I couldn't imagine what doing music in my 50s or even my 40s would have looked like when I first started doing it. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I keep coming back to is like when I was a kid, music felt really magical. You know, I wished I could climb inside the radio, mm-hmm. I wished I could climb into the grooves of a record. You know, and just be in in it. And that's what it was then, because I couldn't, like I was a kid, I didn't have access to live music. I wasn't going out to clubs. So it music, really was magical in a way. Yeah. Something other people got to do or did or something exactly. happened over there. Yeah, exactly. And I've spent a lifetime, well, a part of a lifetime. Uh, it's not done yet. <laughs> but I've spent a lot of years still just fascinated with that thing and of course i get discouraged sometimes or just bored or distracted but like hey there's this other thing and i take some unexpected turns i started writing songs when i was almost 40 after having played music already for 30 years and having zero interest in lyrics all of a sudden one day i was writing songs with words uh i've been an editor at a magazine. I've been the chair of a guitar department. Uh, I didn't see those things coming. I, of course, I didn't stay in those places. I'm not the chair of the guitar department anymore. I'm not an editor of a guitar magazine. Um, but I, I had to try those things, and I, I don't have any regrets any more than, you know, if if you find your life partner, you don't have to, like, think about other partners that you had as with any regret or any bad feelings. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, just had to get here somehow. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And, you know, and then I look at somebody, you know, today, like, like Bill, uh, or, you know, I feel lucky because when I was a kid, all the musicians I knew were older, like all of my grandfather's friends who I knew, those were the first musicians I ever met. Those guys were all in their fifties and sixties when I was a kid. And I've always 
been fortunate that older musicians were kind to me and taught me valuable lessons, not just about what notes to play, but how to, um, how to carry yourself mm -hmm. and, you know, and, uh, now I'm sort of in between, like a lot, most of the musicians that I know now are younger than me. And I, I still get to know people that are on the other side of it, like Bill or my friend Lainey Stern, who's a really incredible musician. Um, I used to play with a guy named Bill Sims Jr. in New York, great blues uh, musician. He was mm. older, he, he passed. Mm. Um, but it's a sweet spot to be in where maybe I get to pass on some of the things I've learned to younger people. And I can still turn, I still have mentors you know, that I can turn to and ask questions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it does seem that like there's something basic to the full-time creative professional life. I think at any level of success of being able to live with the discomfort of unpredictability, you not you don't get to have that, you know, a, a long gig. I mean, that Tracy Chapman gig that's so so long it's unheard of to have like there are musicians in Nashville that are on retainer for big country artists and that you know they like have nice houses and take their kids to school every morning unless they're called up and they got to go on tour but for most people that's not the reality and it does like you know when I was in college and trying to figure out like am I gonna do that? I think I am um, and I had friends that were really talented and, you know, really quickly it sort of separates those who are willing to roll with those who are not. Um, and I was always like, well, I've got enough for a beer. I'm, my rent's paid for another month. I don't care. I want to see what happens. You know, like I didn't care. Right. Um, and that is a prerequisite I feel like for persisting across time. Not everybody's so fortunate, obviously, but uh, of those even who are very talented, um, it's, it's. It's not a foregone conclusion that you'll be able to just like hang with not knowing where your money's coming from next week, next month, tomorrow, sometimes. Yeah. And that's probably the case. I mean, you're, you're, uh, well healed. Is that the term? Um, you're doing great, you know, obviously, and you're like, and you have gigs. I'm not going to worry about you too much, but you still have a, your version of, un, you know, uncertainty and what's happening next year and not, you know, and in that way, I imagine your life's not that different than when you were 22. Right. So yeah. it's really not. Um, and that's kind of comes back to the, the Mr. Rogers bit of just like, and that's okay. Uh -huh. And it's like, it's really a spiritual exercise. You know, the uh -huh. professional creative lifestyle I think is a lot of cultivation of this sort of peace within chaos that life actually is even for people who have maybe the, the appearances of a more stable, you know, financial situation. I don't know. Um, so you're going to go back home today. Home is in New York now. Right. Yeah. And, um, and then what's coming up next? Well, uh, I'm going to be doing some dates with Liz, Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, Duo. Uh, no, with a full band. Uh, when she goes out, it's usually her with a four-piece band. Mm. And I play electric and acoustic. And, you know, we've got kind of a scattered schedule from now till the end of this year. And she's already uh, booking some stuff for next year. Uh, I'm going to play some shows with my band where I sing songs. You know, so I kind of have a... Like maybe a triple musical life. One is as a side guy, session guy, and then I make jazz records like this this new record that, that we mentioned. And then I also am a singer songwriter. And so I have a band. I've had a band since two thousand six called uh, the Mint Imperials. Mm -hmm. And so we've got some road dates coming up in September. Largely the same personnel in that band, or always, yeah. Huh. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's myself and a, a bass player and a drummer, and it's been the same guys since 2006. Mm. So we've got some road dates coming up, and uh, yeah, I'm doing stuff to promote the the jazz record. I'm also doing some singer-songwriter shows. I have a new book coming out in October that's based on stuff from my YouTube channel, so like educational stuff, but 
not music theory, more just like think pieces, stuff mm. stuff to think about when you're practicing, when you're on a gig. It's mm. kind of reflections. That's great. What's it called? It's called string theories. Mm-hmm. And it'll be, it will have come out in October of this year. Yeah. So it's coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like there's no shortage of stuff that's coming up for you. Uh, and that's, I would expect nothing else. Um, I think that we're going to, we're going to play out with, with one more song. Great. And um, this is the part where I say thank you for your time and, and wisdom, man. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I feel like we could do it for a lot longer and hopefully next time or, you know, sometime, You'll come back and we'll talk more. Great, Corby. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I put a spell on you. you won't recover If you even think about Taking on another lover A fighter I One fights to lose I'll use weapons of the spirit To put a spell on you Spanish moss and angel Spanish moss and angel wings And a lock of your hair 
Watch it fade, watch it fade Watch it fade from black to blue Least I had, least I had What I wanted For a moment or two 